So please go ahead, if you have your Bible, and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, we'll work through those first nine verses. Uh, if you're taking notes, I'm going to try to have five points, five truths that we see in this passage. If we can possibly imagine it, let's try to imagine life in the first century where they didn't have all the entertainment that we have now. They didn't have television. They didn't have movie theaters. They didn't have internet. They didn't have smartphones, no YouTube, no video games. Um, all of the things that we do for hours and hours of entertainment weekly and statistics tell us daily, uh, they didn't have those forms of entertainment. But there was a sort of occupation in the first century that could uh, prove very fruitful. There were these men who prepared themselves to give really beautiful speeches, and they traveled from town to town. And when one of these guys would show up in a town, these people that had no other form of entertainment would just gather in crowds to hear a beautiful speech, to hear a guy who had some learning, maybe from some other city or some other country, come into our town and and share his wisdom with us so we could hear something new. And you can imagine this could be a pretty good occupation. These guys got to be pretty famous. Their their name was well known in the area and they could make a lot of money. And Christians had their sort of guy who represented them in this way. The Apostle Paul traveled from town to town and he would come sometimes and crowds would gather and he would share with them the gospel. And when we read Second Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, we see that there is some conflict between the church in Corinth that Paul had planted and the Apostle Paul. Their relationship isn't that great. And in these two letters, Paul is often dealing with the fact that there's some tension in that relationship. It appears that there's a, a faction of the church in Corinth that is criticizing Paul's lifestyle. Maybe it's some new people that have come to the church after Paul had planted it and left, or possibly it's some of those same people that Paul shared the gospel with, and they came to Christ, and they formed a church, and now they've become critical of him and his lifestyle. And it appears that what they think is that Paul, as he travels from town to town, he's not representing Christianity in the sort of way that thousands of people are hoping to become Christians. He's not dressing in a sort of way that represents Christianity well. He, he doesn't own anything. He doesn't have lots of riches. He doesn't come into town and demand respect like some of these other teachers do. But in fact, Paul owns nothing, and he works a second job. It seems demeaning. It seems humiliating. And he says things that are so offensive that he gets kicked out of these towns. He gets arrested, and he gets stoned. And and it appears that the people in Corinth are critical of the way Paul is going about uh, being a representative of Jesus Christ. And so what we have in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6 is this long sort of defense of his lifestyle. He, he shares how he lives. He's calling them to live in the same way that he lives. And he uses a phrase quite a few times in these passages to define himself. And what he says is, I'm living this way because I'm actually a servant. Because I'm not actually a lord. I, it, my life doesn't, my lifestyle doesn't represent me as being some sort of a lord that comes in and rules, but it, it, it shows a person who views himself as a servant or very possibly maybe could better be translated a slave. So in, in 
Chapter 4, verse 1, which is kind of the start of this section, he says this, Therefore, having this ministry uh, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So by the mercy of God, just as salvation was given to us by the mercy of God, we are saved from condemnation by the mercy of God. So also a ministry is given to us, not because we deserve it, but, but out of God's mercy. You don't have to serve your wife and kids. You get to serve your wife and kids. You don't have to serve in the church. You get to serve in the church. As salvation is given you by mercy, so Paul says, a ministry has been given me by mercy. I, uh, I have difficult times in being a missionary in Poland, but from the depth of my heart, it's a gift given to me by God. I praise God for the chance to be a servant in Poland. Um, and he goes through four, five, and six, talking about this ministry that's been given to us. And at the end of chapter five, he kind of summarizes it in this way. He says, what we've been given is a ministry of reconciliation. So, uh, God has reconciled sinners to himself through Jesus Christ, and then he's given them that ministry, that same thing that he did to them, reconciling sinners to himself through Jesus Christ. He's then sent them out and said, do that. Go share with others that word of reconciliation. Let me read chapter 5, starting in verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. So how God is going to do this work of reconciling sinners to himself. How is he going to do it? Well, he's God. He can do it absolutely any way he wants. He can do it through visions. He can show up and talk to people. He can, he can make the rocks cry out and tell them. But he actually has told us how he's going to do it. It's been given to us. It's been given to the church. And he said, I reconciled you to myself through Christ, and now I'm giving you this ministry. Go and be reconciling. Okay, so our passage is right in the middle of that, but it's important for us to understand that our passage is in the middle of him explaining that he is a servant of Christ and we are servants of Christ. Um, our passage, verses 1 through 9, is an explanation of chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. So he makes a couple statements in chapter 4, 16 and 17, and then he works those out in the passage that we're going to study today. So let's go ahead and look at uh, chapter 4, 16 and 17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. So our uh, inner man is being renewed, but that doesn't change the fact that as a servant of Christ, your outer man, your body is going to get beat up in that process. And Paul's body was getting beat up in that process. He was being arrested. He was being stoned. And that's the very thing for which people were criticizing him. Um, so that leads us to our passage. The first truth I'd like us to notice is the fact that Paul wants us to be realistic about the troubles that we're going to have in this body. 
He just simply wants you to be realistic and know that being a servant of Christ in this world, the 80 or 90 years or 70 years that's given you in this world, it's going to be full of trouble. Um, and the way that he does this is talk, is making a comparison between the tent that you have now, something that's temporary, something that's imperfect, and the home that you're going to have one day, something that's more sure, more stable, better than the tent that you have now. So in this comparison, he's pointing out, this is not ideal. This is going to cause you some, some trouble. And let me just read the first couple of verses to draw attention to that again. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. So, The word that he uses could be translated tabernacle. It maybe would cause people to remember that period of time when the Jews journeyed from their homes in Egypt. In Egypt, they had homes. Remember, they could put blood on the doorposts. There was doorposts in the ground. And and one day in the promised land, they're going to go into that promised land and invade big stone cities surrounded by big stone walls. And they would once again have homes in the promised land. But for 40 years, they lived in temporary housing in these tabernacles or in these tents. That tent is, is made of animal skin, which is some protection, but not much. What is it going to do to protect you from a flood? What's it going to do to protect you from, from frost outside? What's it going to do to keep a burglar out? If he's got a knife, he can just cut that wall and come in. These tents are imperfect. It's not something that you're going to in, set up shop in, set up your, your eternal home in. Not something you're going to pass on to the next generation. Um, and he, he's just pointing out that we're thankful for these tents this physical body we have now, but it's imperfect. Something better is coming one day. And the imperfection, the trouble that we're going to have in this tent that he's talking about in this passage is not simply the trouble everyone has in the world. Because everyone, Christian or non-Christian, old or young, is going to have trouble in this world. But he specifically in this passage is talking about the trouble we're going to have because we've chosen to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Because we've chosen the lifestyle of being a servant of Christ, he's talking about the trouble you're going to have because of that. And we need to know that when we go into ministry, when we decide to minister to the sinners around us, that's going to cause us trouble. Um, if, if you find some people in your church, in your community, in your place of work, and you begin to invest in them, you begin to pray for them, you begin to love them, you begin to encourage them, you, you begin to teach them, those same people are going to hurt you. It's just going to happen. Sometimes, sometimes not on purpose. They'll just let words come out of their mouth just because we're all like that and say some hurtful things, not trying to hurt you. They'll gossip about you and tell some funny stories about you, not because they're trying to hurt you, but just because it's a funny story. But you will be hurt by the very people that you're trying to serve, sometimes when they're not trying to, and sometimes purposefully. 
they will on purpose try to drag your name through the mud. They will on purpose say things to you to hurt your feelings. Uh, when we moved to Krakow and started church planting there, uh, we, the first few people that were willing to come to services were teenagers. And there was this group of teenagers. They were all friends already. They knew each other already. And they would come to church services. And we bought a ping pong table and set it up there at church. And they would come long time before church and stay a long time after church and play ping pong and spend time with us. And they and we would invite them to our apartment. And they would come many days of the week and come hang out with us in our apartment. We would play cards. And, and my wife would make food. And we'd sit around the table and eat food. And one day, while my wife and I were in one room playing games and eating food with some of the teenagers, the rest of the teenagers were going through our house, through our cupboards and drawers and, and closets, trying to find anything they could to steal. And in fact, found our month's salary, the entire salary we had for the next 30 days and pocketed that and thanked us for the food and walked out the door. And we had to somehow try to survive the next 30 days with no or very little cash. That sort of thing is going to happen. We take the gospel to people who need Jesus Christ, and they are not always going to be thankful that we've done that. Um, when I was a young boy, I heard a story many, many times about five men from my hometown of Saginaw, Michigan, who in 1943 moved to Bolivia to take the gospel to a tribe of people who had never heard of Jesus Christ. Uh, so these five men packed up their wives and their children. They moved to a city in Bolivia. That's the closest city to that tribe where they were going to take the gospel. They set up shop there in that town. And then when they could, uh, the five men left their wives and children in that town. They got in canoes and they went out to visit that tribe. And they never came back. And for years, no one knew what happened. Until about seven years later, some other people built relationships with people in that tribe and found out the story that those men had come into the tribe. They'd unloaded their canoes. They had many gifts with them. They distributed those gifts. And for a few minutes, everything went well until some people were not happy with the gifts they received. Maybe they thought it should be more. Maybe they thought it was worse than what someone else had received. And an an argument broke out and the argument turned to a fight. And within minutes, the five missionaries were dead. They, for the cause of Jesus Christ, gave up their life to take the gospel to people who need the gospel. And it's easy to recognize the trouble that those five men had because they chose to be servants of Christ. But think for a minute of the trouble their wives had, the trouble their children had, because they decided to be missionaries, to take the the gospel to that, that tribal people. The first truth that Paul is pointing out is the fact that as you're a servant of Christ, that's going to lead to the sort of trouble that he was having in his life as he chose to follow Jesus Christ in this sin-cursed world. But let's look at truth number two. He clearly says in this passage, not only that you're going to have trouble, but be encouraged because your permanent home is sure. Be encouraged because your permanent home is sure. Look at verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. For we know, we, we know that when this body, this tent that you have is gone, we have a home. There have been many sects and cults through the years that have claimed that all things physical are bad 
and all things spiritual are good, and our desire is to throw off this body and become some sort of a spirit being. That this body is bad, if we could just be rid of this body and become spirit beings, some sort of spirits that float around on clouds or or become a drop in the ocean of all that is or or become at one with the universe and live in this spirit world then all will be well that is not the christian's hope the christian's hope is not that we throw off this body and become some sort of spirit beings paul has made that clear very clear a couple times here he says not that we want to be found naked our goal isn't to get rid of this tent and live without a tent. And then the, the next verse, not that we would be unclothed. So this tent leads to trouble. We're going to have trouble. We're going to have sickness. We're going to have suffering. We're going to have sorrow in this tent. And our goal isn't to throw off the tent. Our goal is a better body, a resurrected body. Our goal is to live in a new heaven and a new earth and sit at a real table together with our resurrected Lord and eat real fish tacos and real bacon cheeseburgers and drink real coffee. In a, in a real physical world. We have a tent now in this physical world, and our hope, the Christian hope, is a better world, not some sort of throwing off this world and, and becoming spirit beings. But there are millions of people who call themselves Christians around the world in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Russian Orthodox Church, in the Greek Orthodox Church, in many Protestant churches, I think not millions of people, but hundreds of millions of people that, that call themselves Christians that believe something like this. They believe that you need to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You need to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. You need to take part in the sacraments, be baptized, be a church member, be confessing your sin, take part in the Lord's Supper, do your best, And when you die and stand before the Lord, we'll see if that's enough. We'll see if you can make it, if you'll have that eternal home. Paul is obviously saying something different than that. He's obviously saying, you're going to have trouble in this tent, but be encouraged, know that you have a home. There are millions of Christian teachers so-called Christian teachers, who are teaching something like this, that those people out there who claim that they know that they will be saved from condemnation, those people are very proud. But in fact, the exact opposite is true. A person who says, I'm not sure if my righteousness is going to be enough for me to be accepted by God the Father. I'm not sure if my faithfulness will be enough for me to be accepted on Judgment Day. I'm not sure if I'm going to be good enough to be accepted on the day when I stand before God. That's extreme pride. They think they might be good enough to be accepted by a holy God. We know we're not good enough. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's none righteous. No, not one. We who know that we have a home in heaven don't know we have a home in heaven because we're good enough. We're not good enough. But Jesus can save us. His work is sufficient to save the greatest of sinners. However great your sin, His righteousness is more. Uh, John MacArthur tweeted, I think, if I could lose my salvation, I certainly would. If it's up to us to save ourselves, to be faithful enough, we're doomed. 
But Jesus has done enough to save you. And you can know that you're in heaven. Not be, you, you'll be in heaven. Not because you're good enough. Sometimes in Poland, people ask me, um, are we saved through good works? And, uh, and to try to create a bit of a controversial answer, I tell them, yes, of course. But not your good works. We're saved by good works, but not yours. The works Jesus did in order to save your soul. So we can know that we have a home in heaven. Brother or sister, if you don't know that you're on your way to heaven, it is God's desire that you know. That you know if you are today on your way to hell or you are on your way to heaven. It is not God's desire that His children live in this sort of constant uh, state of not knowing, do I belong to God or not? If you don't know today, talk to someone. Talk to one of the pastors here and tell them that you're living in this state where you're just not sure. And it's God has made it clear that we can know that we belong to Him. Now, I have a question for you. This passage is clearly talking about assurance of salvation. But in these three chapters, He's talking about service, being a servant of Christ. So why is the Apostle Paul making assurance of salvation important in the context of being a servant of the king? Apparently, Paul believes that when you have assurance of salvation, when you know that you have a sure home in heaven, that that changes the way you live now. When you know that you're in a tent now, that this is just temporary, and you have a permanent home somewhere else, you realize you're only a pilgrim here, that that changes the way you live here. There are people that only have hope for pleasures in this world, and they're going to live differently than people who have hope for eternal life in heaven. The third truth that we need to notice is in verse 5. Uh, an amazingly generous gift that is tiny. A huge gift that's given to us that is at the same time small. Uh, Shettleton, the town I live in, is on flat land. There are no hills anywhere around. There's no mountains anywhere around. Uh, it's, it's 150 meters above sea level. It's just flat everywhere around Shettleton. In southern Poland are some beautiful mountains, the Tatra Mountains. I have a friend who has a small apartment down there. About a month ago, I went down and visited him and got to walk around the mountains a bit. We have beautiful mountains in southern Poland. The tallest of the Tatra Mountains are in a, a series of peaks called the High Tatras, and the tallest of those is a peak called Rysy. Rysy is 2,500 meters above sea level. So imagine for a minute, that you're a guy who's grown up in Shetelce, lived in Shetelce his whole life, gets on a train, goes to southern Poland, stays in a hotel, checks in late at night when it's already dark, and in the morning when he wakes up and comes out of his hotel, he sees the high Tatras just towering above him. And he sees the peak Rysse, 2,500 meters above his head. And imagine the awe that he feels seeing this huge thing. And let's read verse 5. He who has prepared you, prepared us for this very thing is God. So you haven't prepared yourself for that eternal home. You've been prepared for an eternal home. He who's prepared you for this is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. 
And we want to talk about that word guarantee. The word means a down payment, a deposit. Uh, it's the first payment made in a series of payments that's a promise that I'm going to make the rest of the payments. So uh, our first three and a half years in Poland, we were in the town of Krakow. And after a small church was established there, and I was sure that it was going to be able to go on without our ministry in that town, we began to look for another town to church plant in. And we found the town of Shuttleze. And we didn't have a car at the time, so I began taking train rides up to Shuttleze to look for an apartment for us to move into. And we didn't have a lot of money. I didn't think that we could buy something, so I was looking for an apartment to rent. But I wasn't able to find an apartment to rent, and I found an apartment that was for sale for $30,000. And $30,000 isn't a lot of money. It's a good price, but it's also $23,000 more than I had. (laughs) I'm not going to find a Polish bank that's going to loan me you know, $23,000 uh, when I only have a two-year residency card and within two years have to leave the country. And I'm not going to find an American bank that's going to loan me money to buy an apartment in Eastern Europe. Um, so I went to the owner of the apartment and I said, this is what I can do. I can give you $7,000 now and within the next couple years, I can give you the $23,000. And she accepted the offer and I was able to buy the apartment. I gave her $7,000 and over the next couple years, the, the remainder of the balance. Because... Who's going to give $7,000 and then disappear? Who's going to give you $7,000 and then walk away from the deal? It's a sort of guarantee. It's a sort of promise that I've given you that chunk. I'm going to give you the rest. Now, that's what God's done in this passage. That's what he's saying he's done. Because uh, he has promised us great promises that are going to happen in the future. And we can read about those throughout the scriptures. But... In this life, some of you, some of us, have gone through such dark valleys that we can begin to doubt those promises. We can begin to feel that God is far from me. Is He going to keep those promises? I don't feel Him anywhere around me. He's probably forgotten about me. Who am I? One little person in one little town, and I know what great sins I've done. Maybe He's not going to keep His promises. And so he has given us something as a guarantee, as a promise to say, I'll give you this now and all the promises one day will come true. They'll all come true because I'm giving you this deposit now. No one has ever been born again by the Holy Spirit and then died and gone to hell. No one ever. You know how we know? Because God guarantees it. Not because we're good enough, not because we work hard enough to stay faithful enough, but because God guarantees it. He says, I'm giving you this Holy Spirit. Now, God gives us all kinds of great gifts. He has given us a world that is full of good gifts. I mean, potatoes grow in this ground. There are trees all around us that not only give us the oxygen we need to breathe, but apples and cherries and nuts fall off those trees. He made, he made chickens that lay us breakfast. He made cows that we can milk. He filled the ground with oil and coal. It's for us, just in case you're wondering. The coal, the oil is for us. It's because we have a loving father who filled this earth with good gifts and he gave it to us. They're everywhere around us. But greater than all those gifts is the fact that he's given us himself. 
When you're born again, He comes and lives inside you. His Spirit dwells in you as a promise that all the promises later are going to come true. So, Rysy, this mountain in southern Poland, which is the greatest we have to offer, 2,500 meters, it's big, but it's nothing like the Himalayas. There's all kinds of peaks in the Himalayas that are over 8,000 meters. This This promise that God has given us the Holy Spirit is huge. And yet, the word used is that it's a deposit. It's just a down payment. Imagine the glories that await us who will one day experience those glories when we stand face to face with Jesus Christ. Truth number four. I'm on four. Uh, In verses six through eight... Um, Paul adds something to the argument that hasn't been here up till now. So in the first five verses, he uh, shows us two time periods. We have this tent now, and we're going to have a home later. And that's all we see in the first five verses. He just compares two things. He says, our desire is not to be naked. We're not going to be some spirit beings. We have a tent now, and we're going to have a home later. But now in verses 6 through 8, he adds something, which can seem a bit confusing at first. So let's read it. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So we've given this guarantee, but it's not everything. We walk now by faith and not by sight. We have to trust these promises. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Away from the body? What does that mean? He just said that's not our goal. He said our goal is to have a a better body. Why does he now say that we would like to be away from the body? Okay, so what he's done is added a third element. It's not necessarily contradictory to the two he's already talked about. So we have a tent now. We're going to have a home one day, but only at the resurrection is that home going to be given to us. And for most of us, there'll be a time period here between the two time periods he's already talked about. A time period when we will be away from the body, but we will be present with the Lord. And he said now that that is better than this. So he's given us three and he's laid out for us a kind of a scale from what's the worst to what's the best. Uh, worst life is what we're living right now. If you're a born-again Christian, this is as bad as it's going to get. And for many of us, this is pretty good. For, for many of us, it's going to go like this. Wonderful to even more wonderful to even more wonderful. I remember when I was a little boy hearing sermons about how Jesus is coming back soon and the pastor telling me I should be excited about this and me thinking, it's pretty good here. I, there's lots of things I haven't done yet and I'd kind of like to do. I, I, I'm not really looking forward to moving on to the next stage because I like this stage so much right now. Like uh, we had bologna in our fridge often and I loved bologna. And I would go to the refrigerator, take out a piece of bologna, pull that red tape off the outside, throw that away, and I would eat the bologna. But if my mom would catch me, she would tell me that I had to put that in a sandwich. I had to take two pieces of bread and put that bologna between the two pieces of bread before I ate it. So I could just wait for the day when I would be an adult and I would have my own fridge. (laughs) And I would eat all the bologna I want. It's a true story. 
my, my parents were Christians. My parents loved me. My dad worked hard at a General Motors factory uh, so we could go to a Christian school. And my life was pretty good. And what we have coming next will be even better and ultimately will be even better. But Paul is writing knowing that many of us don't have what I had. There are many Christians, our brothers and sisters, that are waiting for the day when they'll leave this body and be present with the Lord. Our sister, Johnny Erickson Tata, who probably most of you know, has now been 52 years in a wheelchair. She's waiting for the day when she can leave this body and be present with the Lord. And many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in communist countries or Muslim countries or extreme, extremely Catholic countries, it costs them much to follow Christ. And they endure suffering and sorrow to be baptized publicly, to join a local church. Um, imagine with, with me uh, a man in North Korea or a communist country, a Muslim country, who, who has a prestigious job. Uh, many people look up to him, a wife and children, and he uh, becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's baptized and he joins a local church. It's very possible that he lose that job and have to look for work where he can make a quarter of the money he used to make. That he loses all prestige and honor in his community. People look at him now with disgust. It's possible that he lose his immediate family, that his wife and children turn their back on him because he's chosen to follow Christ and give up job and money and prestige. There are our brothers and sisters right now who are imprisoned, have lost their freedom, because they, they've become followers of Jesus Christ. And certainly, like the story I told a couple minutes ago, many of our brothers and sisters have lost their lives because they've chosen to follow Jesus Christ. So our life, sometimes, my life, going from wonderful to even more wonderful to even more wonderful, isn't the story of many of our brothers and sisters. But they're going through great sorrow and great suffering, and possibly some of you in this room, and looking forward to the day when we'll be absent from this body, present with the Lord, which isn't our ultimate hope, but our ultimate hope is a new body in the new heaven and new earth. But at the same time, those of us who are born again, who have this perspective of life now, better and even better, for many people in this world, this is as good as it's going to get. The life that they have right now in this world is as good for them as it's ever going to get. Because when they die, they will be eternally separated from God in hell. It's no wonder that they live to get everything they can out of this world. It's no wonder that they live for achievements in this world. That they live for a higher paying job, to get more money, to spend more money, to live a more comfortable life in this world. It's no surprise that people who are living their best life in this world are living for this world. But folks, we shouldn't be living that way. It's a problem if we're living that way. This life is as bad as it will get for us. We need to be looking to the future and living for eternity. Truth number five, we find in verse nine. Paul wants us to not just serve the king, but he desires that we serve this king with passion, that it be our ambition to serve the king. Let's look at verse nine. So whether we are at home or away, 
we make it our aim to please him. And that phrase, we make it our aim to please him, could certainly be translated, make it our ambition to please him. We endeavor to please him. We aspire to please him. It's our goal. It's our cherished desire to live for him. I do not always willingly, joyfully serve my wife. There are days when I'm so focused on me and my needs and what I want and my schedule for the day that my wife's needs intrude on me. And it's difficult for me to go ahead and put myself aside and serve her. But at my best, there are days when it is my joy to serve her. When I try to think of ways that I can serve her. And that's what Paul's talking about in this verse 9. Not for us to simply go through the motions of serving our king. Not simply do the things we know we should do to serve our king. But that it come from a deep desire in our heart that we desire to serve him. It's our ambition to serve him. We are looking for ways to serve him. Imagine a young man at his uh, Bible college and he's sitting there in class one day and in walks this girl with a Bible under her arm talking about the R.C. Sproul book she just finished reading and he falls in love and it becomes the desire of his heart to marry this girl. He doesn't just sit around and hope that it'll happen. He begins to think about how he can make this happen. How he can stand in a certain place so when she walks by, he has a chance to talk to her. He makes smart comments, which probably offend her, uh, to, to try to get her attention. He begins to ask questions. What's her name? What is she interested in? What music does she listen to? What does she do in her free time? He begins to save his money so he has some money to ask her out on a date and do one of those things that she's interested in doing, that they could do it together. He begins to put on too much cologne iron his shirt and put gel in his hair so he looks ridiculous. But he doesn't just sit around hoping that he gets a chance to, to win her heart. He sets his ambition on something and he thinks about it and he dreams about it. He looks at ways to do it. And we talk about, I hope this week I get a chance to serve the Lord. Well, yeah, that's something. But aren't there needs around you that you could notice? Are there needs in your church? Are are there needs in your family? Does your wife have needs? Do your kids have spiritual needs? Are there needs in your place at work? If this is our ambition, if it's our ambition to be servants in the kingdom of God, then let's look for ways that we can build this kingdom. Let's look for where the needs are and what talents we have and what free time we have and what money we have and let's use our talents and time and money the best way that we can to build this kingdom to see the gospel go forward. Imagine with me for a minute that the whole world is a dark globe. Just picture the whole world covered in darkness. And then picture yourself as a match, a match that gets lit, that's going to burn for three or four seconds. You're going to burn for three or four seconds no matter what happens. There's no way that you're going to prolong that. You're going to make that three or four seconds any better. So just go ahead and throw yourself out in that darkness somewhere. Just just use your life as something that can be spent, something that can be burned up, and go burn it up, taking the gospel into that darkness. And maybe God will see fit that that match start a small fire. If that match starts a fire, who knows what can happen with that. But Paul is saying in this passage that what you have now is a tent. 
It's not your permanent home. It's just temporary. It's going to cause you trouble no matter how you use it. And he assures you that you have a better home waiting for you, that God has prepared you for it. He's given you a guarantee that you're going to have it. And that frees us up to use up this tent that we have in service to the king. So let's use it up. Let's go out and see how we can build this temple, this this kingdom, and not spare ourselves. What are we sparing ourselves for? The life that he's given us is short. Let's view it as something that can be spent, and let's spend it wisely. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the teaching that... Paul has given us on why he lived his life the way he lived it, why he was willing to let his body be abused and used up. And Lord, I pray that you would give us that perspective. Help us to not focus on the comforts of this world, money and achievements in this world, but give us an eye that looks to the future. Help us to use our lives to the best of our ability to build your kingdom for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.